Look left. Look right. Yes, your inner place. Ever wondered what goes into making great places? Join Jeff and Matt as they speak to placemakers across the globe and have a chat about what goes into creating the workplaces, communities, hotels, restaurants, civic spaces, even cities that we all use on the daily. Okay, welcome to the Places for People podcast. I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their leaders past, present and future. Hi, I'm Jeff, and we're going to be speaking to strategists, creatives, and place and property professionals to find out what goes into planning, creating, and running some of the coolest places on the planet. Now, I'm obliged to mention to you that if you are loving the podcast, please make sure that you subscribe and leave a review. So luckily for me today, we have with us Annie Tennant. Annie is Director of Design and Place at New South Wales Department of Planning and has had an incredible career in urban design and strategy with special expertise in culture, sustainability and public art. Her work in diversity, inclusion and connection to understanding and celebrating the culture of First Nations peoples is inspiring. Having watched her work, she is paradoxically a caring soul and a force to be reckoned with, and is one of my heroes in the property and business world. Annie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. So each episode, we start by asking guests to paint a picture of their favourite places, either near or far. So can I ask what place holds a personal spot in your heart and why? Yeah, you bet. I've actually got two. One is near and one is far. So the place that is near that really is very special to me is um, Ball's Head, which is on Camaragal country just um, over the water from where we're sitting now. It's in Waverton at the coal loader. And what is special about this place is that it's a place for community. It's a place that explores ideas of um, sustainability. There's a beautiful bushwalk and you can walk through these uh, remnant industrial spaces, walk around the headland, look at the water and then walk through an Angofra forest. And that Angofra forest is very much for me, almost like a cathedral. I love it. Sounds amazing. It is amazing, and you should go there. Um, <laughs> oh, and then the will. and then the um, other place that I love is um, just north of San Francisco. So I did my masters overseas and spent quite a lot of time in San Francisco. And I was lucky enough to have a very close friend who had a place at Bellinas, which is on the San Andreas Fault, but it was on this lagoon looking back at these incredible hills and ranges and the sun would hit them and you'd see the kind of reflection on the water and you'd be drinking your gin and tonic on the, in the hot tub, watching the birds and you'd have the binoculars out and you could see seals and it was wow. kind of amazing. <laughs> it sounds it. Yeah. I think the thing with doing this podcast and asking this question, I get extremely jealous every time I hear the answer. They both sound fantastic places. I'm not sure I'll make it to San Francisco anytime soon, but definitely Bull's Head is uh, is definitely going to be checked out. They sound fantastic and yeah, really special. Yeah, thank you for sharing those with us. So can you tell us a bit about what a young Annie was interested in growing up and how you came to be where you are today and what kind of happened in your life along the way that has shaped you into what you are today? So uh, little Annie was really interested in people and loved to chat, which may come as no surprise to you, Jeff. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And I was um, really into my family and really into my, I spent a lot of time with my nana and my papa and my uncles, very close to my mum and my stepdad and my sibling, my brother. And we spent quite a lot of time exploring 
nature, so Balmoral Beach and the headlands of Sydney and Sydney Harbour, and it sounds extremely privileged, but um, and it was and it is. I have a privileged life, but I was brought up to always understand that I was a very lucky person and I came from a very lucky family and that there were others who were less fortunate than me. And to always realise that even though I do have a loud voice and could be the loudest in the room, my voice isn't the most important and that it was really important to listen. And so, you know, growing up, that caring for my community of my family is something that helps me understand more about other communities and, and what is needed and necessary in the cities that we are shaping. Also, nature and this, I suppose, a, a such a deep and profound respect for nature um, is also something that's very much shaped me and my outlook on the world. But I also um, was brought up to kind of be excited about cities and culture and art. And, you know, I remember special events each year. My nana would take me into the opera house to see a show. That excitement of putting on my favourite dress and being taken into the city on the train and um, seeing a show was always, you know, it was really formative as well. And so art and culture is absolutely part of me. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited by it. Absolutely. What a lovely mix mm. of of things to be exposed to. Mm. Was that always, you grew up in New South Wales, obviously? I did. I'm, I'm Sydney born and bred, which yeah. is probably unusual, isn't it? Um, Sydney born and bred. And so I have lived overseas and I yeah. married a foreigner, but always felt this draw to come back. And I was very clear actually with my uh, now husband when we met that wherever we lived, we'd have to come back to yeah. Sydney. It was kind of, uh, you know. <laughs> it's home. It, it was a given. Yeah, yeah. it was, a, it was yeah. home and also close to my family. Yeah. Did you travel with your family when you were younger? Yeah, I remember. Uh, being 12 and having uh, my first overseas trip. Actually, it was my second overseas trip, but, uh, you know, first trip to Europe. I do remember with my Walkman, and that dates me, <laughs> listening to Duran Duran in the back of this hire car driving around um, France and listening to, you know, Save a Prayer. And just that <laughs> refrain, you know the song I'm talking about, and just this kind of moodiness. It was winter and the moodiness of the song and the moodiness of the city and the moodiness of the landscape really kind of is what has stayed with me, actually. So travel is is very important to yeah. me. Yeah, I think that exposure to different places different types of places, like you say, is formative, especially in those younger years. Yeah, it is. And, and, and I've actually found that as I've gotten older, and actually it's exploring Australia that excites me more. It's, it's got, you know, my trips to Broome or far north Queensland or, you know, the centre or, you know, Adelaide, Ghana country. They're places that I want to explore now. I want to go to the Flinders Ranges. You know, there are so many places that I want to go and go walking and, and just take it all yeah. in. It's often the places that are closer to home that you never do get to explore. Yeah, that's I'd right. love to do the same around the UK as well. Yeah, yeah, I barely saw out of my hometown yeah. when I lived there, which is quite pathetic, really. Yeah. Look, I'm keen to dig more into your journey, and I'd love to know professionally how you evolved from, I guess, an early career in urban design um, as an urban designer, a title I guess that many people have to where you are today. And I think it'll be incredibly inspirational for people who work in the industry to hear a bit more about that story. I think it's a bit of luck and also maybe a bit of tenacity. Um, and it's something that my mum's always said to me was I was born with determination. Yeah. So um, I did architecture and I was very fortunate to know early that I wanted to be an architect, you know, because I was, you know, at the age of eight knew that I was, you know, I was good at maths and I, I liked art. And so I, I was, you know, someone said, oh, that means you should be an architect. So it's a very lucky tip to isn't get that, that weird? Age. But it's a bit yeah. funny, isn't it? And, <laughs> and I stuck to it. And so I got a scholarship with the government architect's office and um, 
studied at the University of New South Wales and uh, was very, very fortunate that each holiday I was able to work with a different team that worked on different types of public projects. So whether it was police stations or schools or TAFE colleges, it really exposed me to the importance of good quality design for everyone. Um, and public buildings and public spaces are so, so important. And they're the, the fabric, they're the building blocks of our cities, really. And when I graduated, I went out to the Government Architects site office um, on the Olympic site. And we worked with the um, Hargraves Associates, who are landscape architects from the States. And I, there I was exposed to the, you know, designing of public spaces for the Olympics. And that's really when I just went, oh, public space. This is great. And so I loved working on site. Loved it. Uh, loved the commute, even loved the site sheds, loved the sandwiches that you'd buy, you know, the salad sandwiches from the <laughs> construction site shed. Yeah. Loved it all. Maybe I didn't love the dust, you know, maybe, yeah. you know, I could live without that. <laughs> um, but I did really love that world and um, decided to go and do my master's and um, went to Berkeley and did um, a master's of urban design and landscape. And there I was um, exposed to the most incredible minds and spirits in the industry and they still, you know, one in particular still shapes, has, has shaped who I am and that's uh, Walter Hood and he is uh, an African-American urban design artist, architect, landscape architect who works in um, the Bay Area and I ended up working for him. Wow. And we worked on small projects like um, North in North Richmond, which is in the Bay Area, working on a project to give them curb and gutter. So really simple, basic projects, important projects, all the way through to the de Young Museum with Herzog and Demuron, which is, you know, the ultimate glamour job. Yeah. So what I loved about that was that, you know, there were small projects that had such a profound impact on people all the way through to city shaping projects. Um, and that really excited me. When I came back to Australia, I, went, I worked for Hassel and uh, in consulting and then was poached to Lend-Lease where I was, it was by a good friend of mine, actually, who said, look, you keep writing master plans. What's going to happen with those master plans? And I said, oh, I think they're going to sit on a shelf for 15 years. And in fact, I did work on a fish markets master plan and <laughs> along yeah. with everyone else in Sydney, right? <laughs> and ended up working, my first job at Lynn Lease was urban designer, working on uh, Rouse Hill. So got to actually work with builders and say, it's really important we have a tight curb radius so that we reduce the size of intersections so that when people are crossing the road, they don't have to cross, you know, it's not too far. It doesn't take too long. Yeah. Um, it's all about the pedestrian. It's all about the person, you know, in a wheelchair or the person pushing a pram. How do we make um, the public spaces of all our communities enjoyable? shaded footpaths, good, you know, paths on both sides of the street, working with builders um, on the design of their houses so that we ended up with a nice streetscape, all of that kind of stuff. So I loved doing that. And then in my spare time, I was president of the National Association of Women in Construction. I'd been volunteering for that for a couple of years. And um, I was asked to apply for the role of um, the first ever global diversity and inclusion manager for Lend-Lease, um, which I did. And I um, developed the first strategy in the industry in Australia that I know of for, for diversity and inclusion. That was in 2007 and eight. Um, so that was really where I learned about how to apply my design thinking analysis mind that I learned in architecture school yeah, yeah. to business problems. And so using that um, analytical thinking and doing the you know research 
yeah. around what are the issues that we need to deal with and then what are the how do we set up a change management program that not only works in Australia but also works in you know um, the east coast of the states and works in Milan and works in London and so I was able to undertake focus groups and meet with people and ask them what are the issues that affect you in the office and those are techniques and skills I learned from doing architecture yeah, yeah which yeah. I find I still find yeah. it kind of fascinating. You can definitely see how it translates yeah. from one thing to the yeah. other. Yeah. I mean, oh yeah, obviously completely different, but really you're dealing with people and you, you know, you need to meet the needs of your, I don't know, call them customers yeah. and that's what it's all about, right? Absolutely. Like that's the fundamental need across most things. Yeah. Is to find out what people want and how can you best deliver that. Absolutely right. You've hit the nail on the head. And so, you know, future projects after that that I worked on, I ended up becoming a development manager working on this project. We're sitting at Barangaroo yep. and I missed living in New York. That's, you know, that's a, I lived in New York because <laughs> I met a New Yorker and married a New Yorker. So that's, yeah. <laughs> so I was lucky enough to do that. And then moved back here and worked on public domain and public art strategy for Brangaroo. Mm -hmm. And then I suppose it's kind of then cascaded into, you know, I suppose all encompassing design and place. Yeah. Wow. Outcomes. I yeah. mean, look, it's a hu huge career of some amazing things. And obviously being the lovely, humble person that you are, you just kind of La 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 la, skip through it. Um, and without recognizing necessarily that there's some fantastic achievements in there. What do you think, you know, going from job to job and like say you've skipped through it, what made you special and stand out? Like why, you know, you oh God, obviously what a question, there's qualifications, Jeff. but why you? Um, what do you think pushed you forward ahead of everybody else? Uh, well, I don't know that there was anyone else for the diversity and inclusion role. So let's just say <laughs> okay, that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, why me? Um, I think I get on with people. I like people. And so it makes things a bit easier if people like to work with you. I think my mind is okay. Like I think I'm you yeah. know, I can work out, I can, <laughs> I can sort through problems and issues yeah. and uh, I feel like I do fix things a lot and so um, people can rely on me to get things done. I, I don't know how else to answer that question. I feel a little <laughs> bit embarrassed by it actually. But, um, well, no, I think of it. I mean, it's really to help other people that may be – you know, early okay. stages of okay, their advice. career. Okay, okay, okay. Like, that's a better way. Of, how okay. do they get ahead? How do they get ahead? I think it's really important that people listen to what's being asked of them and think about how they can do the best job that they can do and think about how they can add to, like enhance the outcome. What difference can they make? And I think when you take the initiative, not just in energy or time, but in my, like in thinking, I think that makes an impression on people and people appreciate it when you take a task to that next level. And, and if you've thought it through carefully, I do think, um, I think I have benefited from a creative streak. I'm able to make connections in ways that can benefit a project. And so I think that sometimes if you're thinking about a problem or a task in your career, in, in your job, how can you think about it outside the box? How can you think about it in a different way that others may not think about? And that doesn't mean you should try to be different for the sake of being different. I'm not saying that at all. I'm yeah. saying yeah. Um, try to come at a problem. Yeah. yeah, try to come at a problem from a slightly different way and maybe it'll crack it. Yeah, yeah. stepping back and taking, taking a bit of time. 
Yeah. Whereas most people jump to solution and yeah, yeah. How and do I solve exactly yeah. what you've told yeah. me to do? Yeah. Whereas, oh, well, sometimes they know. do half the job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, um. Can you tell us a bit more about what your actual role as director of design and place entails now? Yeah, oh my god, it's um <laughs> it's a newish role and my role is essentially to guide the design and place outcomes for some key Sydney Harbour foreshore lands, so that's the rocks, Darling Harbour, don't forget Barangaroo now, the bits <laughs> that aren't under development but the bits that yeah. have already been handed over and also White Bay actually. And so I think earlier I was telling you about this, you know, sometimes you have to get in the weeds, but also you've got to think strategically. My role is absolutely that. So sometimes it's, oh my goodness, we need to update the umbrellas on George Street. So helping the team come up with what's the right, right strategy for replacing umbrellas and what colour's right and which brand and what's the right <laughs> quality and all of that, which is pretty minutiae. Yep, yep. It's not necessarily my sweet spot, let's be honest. <laughs> um all the way through to broader kind of what's our vision for this place? What do we want to see here? Why do people want to come here? And what can we do to create a place that is comfortable, that is um, exciting at the right times, but also offers respite at other times? Um, so I, I'm kind of applying both parts of my mind most of the time. Yeah, I guess it's kind of nice in that, you know, if you're too strategic all the time, sometimes the actual outcome is mm. so far away. Whereas, you know, yes, changing umbrellas over might be <laughs> no, a little it's, less. It's uh, a funny example, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little less, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, fun and, yeah. um, and what have you. But at least there's an outcome yeah. that's yeah. tangible and you can see it. Yeah, in that's the right. Day. So, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, I think sometimes the balance of those things yeah. is nice too. Yeah. What's it like, obviously, you know, having known some of the projects that you've worked on in the past, it feels like a quite a change in scale mm. to go from even a project as big as Barangaroo to something that is, you know, quite significant in size and, and difference. Is there a big difference between working on things at those two different scales? I think probably from the outside, that's what it looks like. But I actually think I'm guided by a lot of the same principles and values. You know, I'll give you an example. So, for example, at Barangaroo, I worked very closely thinking about how do we connect the, this place to country after it was essentially designed. So, you know, what can we be do to giving to be giving voice to First Nations people in this place in a in a tangible, physical way? It wasn't my role to work on, I suppose, you know, employment or anything like that. But it, you know, my role was around public domain and public art. So, what could I do in that space? And so, thinking about that as an example, how do we do that? at the bigger scale in a similar way though, but it's just broader and it's there are more opportunities, I suppose. The budgets are probably a lot less <laughs> in the space I'm working and the things that I can do, but it's similar principles. And also because I've worked on the ground on a project, project delivery, when I'm sitting across the table from a consultant or sitting across the table from a developer, I know the pressures they're under. And so I can empathize with what they need to deliver. Or I can empathize with the package of documentation they're trying to finish off, but give some practical tips on what I know has worked. But my eye is always on how do we create the best places for the people of New South Wales? And I know that sounds like a slogan, but it is honestly what drives me. <laughs> it's ridiculous, isn't it? But it is what drives me. It's like, how yeah. do we make this really fantastic? And how do we create opportunities for people who don't necessarily have the same opportunities that everyone gets? 
Yeah, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? I just, you know, I sit there and I sometimes the scale of things baffles me, and I'm like, oh my god, you know, I've got this place, that yeah. place, and obviously, as you've described, is like the needs of different people do vary, and I know we're talking about, I guess, a relatively small geographical area it in is, Sydney, yeah. but you know, as we know, like Sydney in very minute pockets. It's very different and the needs of the people in different communities does vary across those different areas. Yeah, and that's when you tap into people who know all the things you don't know. So, you know, in city-making projects, you know, we all know that it takes thousands of minds, right? And so when it comes to the different needs of different communities, you do your research and you you do your engagement and you listen and you you run that kind of analysis project or you assess what's needed in order to, to deliver the right outcome. You can't always do that because things move quite at pace and at speed, but you do what you can do, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. It makes perfect sense. Do you think all the elements of great placemaking are kind of universal and translate across different types of projects and different scale of projects? Yeah, I think that if I think about the most important things in the places that I have a role in, it's about regeneration. So how do we regenerate these places for the future? How do we create socially and environmentally resilient places? So that that could mean you know, looking at the kinds of plants you specify. It could be looking at how, how do you deal with water on this site. It should actually be all of, the, all of yeah, those things, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and also, how do you create a place that people want to spend time in? And that could be comfortable seats. I feel so sorry for the landscape architects that I keep dealing with because all <laughs> I ask is, how is my grandmother going to sit on that seat and then get up again? How is my child or how is that three-year-old going to engage in this place in a meaningful way? So comfort, shade, greenery, everyone's crying out for greenery. Longevity of materials, we've got to do more with less. Again, that's around resilience, isn't it? It's around creating places that people love and care about and want to keep coming back to. That's what I I reckon that's what drives great places. It's funny, like you go through that list and they're all things that are the way that you put them. They're so simple. Oh, and yeah, they're so hard. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, well, that's right. The question's simple. And yeah, sometimes they are hard to deliver. But I think sometimes it goes back to what you were saying earlier around just step back and think about it. Don't just jump to the solution or don't jump to something else that you delivered somewhere else. This is unique for this place and for this set of challenges. So how do you step back? Think about it and not just jump into the solution mode. Yeah. And also keeping the questions really simple. Mm. Like I love that. How like what works here? How will what my works? grandma get up off this yeah. bench? Yeah. It's a really great way to put in context the actual challenges of the people that will use yeah. the place in the end. That's right. And you know, it. and you know what I keep coming back to is that these are all principles of essentially caring for country. We're all on country, no matter where you are. And, you know, connecting with country connecting with place means connecting with other people mm. it also means connecting with your environment the physical environment so those principles are really so important and so pertinent they're timeless principles but they are what should guide us into the future speaking of the future oh, yeah <laughs> can you share a bit about the directions for sydney and i guess plans that you're making for the mm. future but 
in a way that you describe it to say a resident of Parramatta who's worried about what what will the future of Sydney look like for their children and grandchildren? Look, it's um I can only speak to the projects or the places that I'm I'm yeah, working sure. on, but a lot of it is it's what we've been talking about, which is the basics and it's it's how do we attract people into the city? How do we attract people People are already attracted to the harbour, right? Yeah. But when they come, when people come to the harbour, often it's for a big event. But what I'm hoping we can do is create more opportunity for people to come at other times of the year. And to do that, it's getting the basics right. It's creating reasons for people to come in. And so for me, the future of Sydney is actually improving what we have. Yep. It's improving the quality of what we have. It's um, listening to the feedback we receive. And it's then adapting and changing and being flexible and not being too fixed in what we think the answer is. It's really hard, I think, as an architect. I know we're, we just, we're, we're trained to kind of go, well, I think I know the answer. Yep. And can I tell you, <laughs> I'm the first to admit that I do that. Right? You, you made that comment earlier around, oh, it's really important that you listen and don't jump to conclusions. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, I do that. I'm sure I do. Well, um, someone's going to have the answer oh, at God, some no, stage. No, no, I don't, I don't have all the answers at all. I rely on, you know, the brains of many other people. Speaking about adaptability and being able to cope with change, how far in, into the future do you plan and what does that kind of look like? Yeah, so we're currently looking at, you know, you know, the City of Sydney has a 2050 vision and we're really inspired by that. And so we're, we're thinking about our smaller areas like Darling Harbour. What does, yeah. What's Darling Harbour 2050 look like? So we're currently mm. thinking about that. Bays West, that's another one of the projects we're working on. So what are we now? 2022. Oh, but we're thinking 30, 40, 50 years into the future. What yeah. is that place going to be? What's... What's special about Bayes West? Well, I think we all know it's the White Bay Power Station. And how can that become this jewel for, for Sydney siders to be proud of and all Australians to be proud of and yeah. be excited by? In terms of thinking about the vision, mm. what does that kind of visioning process look like for you? Oh, God, that's a good question. Look, there are fast and long ways to do that, right? So yeah. we've, um, I think we've probably been involved in many long processes for developing a vision for a place, but it really comes down to a couple of things. One is engagement. So you listen to your customers. I find customers a funny word, but, you know, community groups say. So residential, community groups, you know, businesses, other key stakeholders in an area. What's working for you? What's not working for you? What do you want to be able to do here? What excites you about this place? And asking those kinds of questions. And then you think, okay, well, we've, we've got a whole lot of information here. Who's our audience? And then doing some analysis. Who's our audience in 10 years? Who's our audience in 25 years? Who's our audience in 50 years? How are the demographics of Australia, of Sydney changing? And how does this place need to adapt in order to meet the needs of community now, but also in 25 years, in 35 years. And so it's doing that analysis, listening work, analysis work, and then setting up some, you know, good, clear objectives. What are we trying to achieve here? What are the principles that are going to guide decision-making into the future? So decision-making around what bench to choose or I don't know, where the open spaces should be, yep. you know, what the future development sites might be. They're all the key steps that go into it. And then setting up the principles that then guide the actual delivery. Oh, and then of course, you've got to check, did it work? So <laughs> when you have delivered something, I think it's really important. Not People don't do this enough, which is has this worked? Yeah. Has this been successful? What can we learn for, for the next time? Yeah. And do you start there, I guess, next time? The you know, looking at lessons learned and yeah, all I think that it's really important. In the past. I mean, I think your question is, do you do that <laughs> haphazardly? Yeah, but we need to. 
yeah, it's really important. There's a lot to get from it, I guess, is yeah. the important point. Yeah. So with all of that stuff, I guess it's, it sounds, and so it should, and I guess very analysis, analytics kind of heavy and it does, doesn't of, it? Yeah. And you, you probably know. didn't expect oh, that well, of me, did you? you know, <laughs> no. well, but I, obviously, like you say, it's very important to go through that process. But I guess, you know, from someone who's not worked in a, a government organization, mm. what would you say to someone that looks at working in government and something like this process and goes, well, there's no creativity in government? Yeah. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm turned off by that. I don't want to work for government. I want to work in private practice yeah. or do whatever. Is that a truth? And you know, what kind of innovative things have you seen in your time or mm. working on at the moment that would kind of alleviate someone's fear in that regard? So when I think about, say, government or if I think about private practice, there is no one role in government. There's no one department in government in the same way that there's no one kind of design firm to work for. And so um, I know that sounds like a non-answer, but the reality is one person's experience for one particular consulting firm is going to be very different to working for a different consulting firm. But that being said, I think your question is probably focused around what's the culture like and does it foster creativity and, you know, innovation. Yeah, look, let's put it this way. I'm a pretty creative person Mm. compared to some, and I don't feel constrained. I feel that I have been given plenty of opportunity to be creative, to come up with different types, different ways to deliver strategies or a place vision, for example. So an example would be for me, connecting with country, listening to First Nations voices, elevating First Nations voices drives everything that we need to be doing. And so therefore I've redesigned the process for how we do that with on our projects. Yep. That to me is pretty exciting. That to me is uh, innovative and it's starting to, you know, support other parts of government in how they deliver projects in um, in doing that. Admittedly, you know, that that is something that we did and I did in a previous role. But again, it was a tough slog getting it going there. It's a tough slog to, to kind of change the way people do things. But I think it's quite creative, actually, thinking yeah. about processes and, and you know, how you deliver the best outcome for a place. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, I guess with something like that, you know the longevity that it's going to have and therefore the effect it's going to have not only on, you know, a few people on a place at a, one moment in time. Yeah. That's creativity that you've just inspired that will be generational and last for a much, much longer period and have an effect on much, much more people. So yeah, look, who knows? Creativity can be in all different forms. Absolutely. um, Absolutely. Yeah. Look, I love that answer. I think it's really good. I think it is inspirational for people to be able to hear it and go, yeah, actually, I don't want to make a real change. You know, I don't want to be superficially creative. It's something that I can get my teeth into and and make a real difference. Well, look, creativity isn't just doing a drawing. I mean, I do lots of drawings (laughs) on my little iPad here, but it's also thinking about how you attack a problem. Yeah. And how you work with people. Yeah, most definitely. So I've been fortunate enough to see and experience some of the work that you did in Barangaroo with some very um, talented, creative Aboriginal peoples. Mm-hmm. I think it's an area that scares some people. Um, they may not understand reconciliation. They may not understand First Nations cultures, whatever it may be, but it limits their involvement in creating opportunity. Can you share some of your experiences 
and maybe some practical tips on engaging with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, particularly in the property and place sector? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's actually a question I get a, a fair bit. I'm the non-Indigenous co-chair of Reconciliation New South Wales. And so the first thing I will say is educate yourself, go to our website, have a look at some of the toolkits, have a look at some of the information, join our Instagram page and look at the materials out there. So educate yourself, do the work. Too often we are asking Aboriginal people to do the work for us and to educate us. We have to make the effort ourselves. Learning how to listen. I think we've talked about listening a lot today, haven't we? Learn how to listen in a really true and meaningful way, make eye contact, connect with people, and then be true to your word. You have to be true to your word. And that doesn't mean always following through because I think it's hard when you're working in large projects to, you you don't have control of outcomes always, do you? Like, no, no, you know, absolutely not. Like no. we are just one, but one in a machine, like one, what is yeah. it, one cog, yeah. you know, we, you know, series of hundreds yep. of wheels or whatever. <laughs> and so, but at least be true to your word and say, this is what I will try to do. This is what I can do and follow through on what you can do. And some basics, get your land and country right, capital C country. Practice saying the country you're on. Practice just practice giving an acknowledgement and giving an acknowledgement in a meaningful way that speaks to your experience now or the projects you're working on. I find that really, because it, it actually, the, the, be, the more you practice it, the better you get with yep. it. And I know that sounds really cursory. It's really not though, because yeah. um, it helps you connect with where you are in time and space and place. And um, that I think is a, one of the key points of acknowledging country. And the final point I'd make is build relationships that last. And so, mm. you know, you reference Barangaroo, um, Shell Wall, the artwork that's on, um, first artwork we delivered that's uh, seven stories tall and it's on, it's not Anadara, it's at the residential building just facing Barangaroo House. Yeah. That's an artwork by um, Auntie Esme Timbury and Jonathan Jones. I worked with Emily McDaniel, who's a curator, and I was her first client. It was her first curatorial job on a public art project. And I have Hetty Perkins to thank for that, who recommended working with Emily. And um, Emily and I worked on that. And, you know, these principles I've just talked through, you know, following through and, and, and really connecting with someone. I did all of that with Emily. Like that's how we worked together and still work together. And the trust that we have developed, we just become a real friendship. And so that relationship I know will last my life, I hope. Yeah. My relationship with Alison Page as well, also a design advisor on the Barangaroo project. I first worked with her at the age of, oh God, I don't know, 22 or something, which is, you know, only yesterday. So a long time ago, and uh, that was in the government architect's office. And that relationship, again, is based and, and founded on trust and respect and caring for each other. And these are relationships that will last. And they are women who have my back and I have their back. I think there's some fantastic points there. And again, some of it is so obvious and it feels so obvious, right? And you just go, oh, yeah, that's how you treat people. And that's how you should treat people, every person, right? Which I think is, you know, fantastic. And it's good for people to hear that. I mean, you know, just be a decent human being and pretty much and do some That's research the message of today. and the message for today is being a good be a good person and understand <laughs> it from my experience as well is there well let me ask you this question i guess do you think it is a reasonable and practical expectation of people to when they're working with an indigenous business to 
maybe step back and reset their expectations because they're working, not always, not always, but sometimes they're working with a team or a person that has had less chance to grow from potentially a position of inequality. And, you know, generational trauma. That's right. And you can't have the same expectations of them as you may do, you know, yeah the guy down the road that you've just Googled and has, you know, has had privilege and is his business is at a place where someone else's yeah. might not be. And I you know, it's a genuine question. Yeah, to- look, it's a good question. I'm just there are two points I suppose I'd make. One is I think that you could make that point about anyone. There are there are people who are who come from all all walks of life who have not had the same experiences or opportunities as you and I. And we should always just, I I think you should give people the benefit of the doubt. We don't know what's happening in other people's lives. You don't know what's happened to them. And so regardless of the person, give them the benefit of the doubt. I do think that building the capacity building and capability building is an important principle for us to have when working with um, Aboriginal communities and consultants and service providers. I will just make this one point, and that is that every Aboriginal person that I have worked with on any of these projects I'm talking about has been so deeply inspirational to me and so amazing at every turn that, uh, you know, the, the question is, is, is kind of irrelevant, you know. It's a complicated question with a complicated answer. There is no answer yeah. to it except to say that my, that's been my experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think probably the important thing is to – speak, talk, understand each other, understand where, you know, people's expectations are, what's important to one another, both sides. What drives you? Absolutely. What do you need to get out of this project? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. because that's another really important question is why is it that you are doing this project? Yeah. And what do you want to get out of it? Uh, not everyone wants to make a profit. They actually just want to get the job done, for example, or yeah. they want to build relationships or whatever it yeah. is. Um, and yeah. so um, just understanding where the other person is coming from is really important. Look, I think that's a really important and good message because mm-hmm. I think my my experience has been similar to yours and everything or often amazing things happen on projects that you work on. Mm. Um, when you do think about country, when you do involve First Nations businesses, and it's a fantastic experience that I hope you know more opportunities will yeah. continue to open up for people in future. Can we talk more generally about yeah. the importance and benefits of diverse representation in cities and places and how you better think we can achieve that objective for the places that we work on in our sector? Yeah. If you think about our population, what is it, 51% female? You're asking the wrong person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not in the analytics No, anymore. I know. But, but I mean, no, but just yeah. in the world, right? There yeah, are more women absolutely. than men, right? Yeah. Um, but you look at the political structures and it's more men are represented. Women mainly have the caring role. Women, the burden is often on on women. Yeah. Uh, that is, I, I, I do think that's changing, but I also can see that women, many women I know, are choosing not to pursue senior levels of executive management because they don't like the culture. We're not going to see change in our businesses 
until the actual culture changes. And I don't know how that happens. I've got to be honest with you because I think it's almost like there has to be fundamental, fundamental change. It's not just tweaking at the edges. When you said representation in our cities, do you mean how spaces are made and formed? Yeah, I guess so. I, and who they're for. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, again, that comes back to the question of who's using that now Who's going to use it in 10 years' time, mm. 25 years' time? Who do we want to have use it? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things we, you know, I don't know if you saw the announcement that we're going to have 30% affordable housing at White Bay. That was in the paper last week. I think that's an incredibly ambitious and fantastic target. It's unbelievable. Absolutely. And it's only by doing bold, amazing things like that, that you're going to get that diversity within our spaces. You know, like you look at Barangaroo, I love it, but mm. none of us can afford to buy one of the apartments, can we? Yeah. Oh, and, and there are there's key worker housing provided on site though. Yeah. There is. It's not super affordable, right? And it's yeah. so important that we do enable those that, you know, those that teachers, people on teachers' salaries. Yeah. Yeah, don't, I guess. Don't have to commute. Yeah. It's a problem with gentrification in yeah. cities across the world. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, typically. It, yeah. It is, so yeah. you do need those big, yeah. bold goals because often it's those kind of, I know, they're kind of slightly run down looking cafe or whatever it may be that makes those places in the city special. And they probably ha it probably has the best custard tart you've ever had in your life, right? That's right. Yeah. But then they have to commute for three hours to get back home to right. rest up to come back the next day. And it's not a good experience for anyone, but also it doesn't add to the richness no. of what that city culture is all about. No, and also what's the rent? What's yeah. the rent of that cafe? Can Absolutely. they afford? Is there is there financial sustainability yeah. in that business model? It's a yeah, it's a it's a real tough. So I've one. given you no answer well, at I think, all. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's a difficult question. I think everyone struggles with, but I think you know it's good to hear. Setting bold goals is the only way that we're going to do it. I think, oh, I think right. we have to. Like, I think you, two percent, five percent, whatever. It's like, nothing. It's not going to make a man, difference. Thirty percent. <laughs> it's yeah, amazing. Absolutely. No, it's it is great. You know, there's a lot of challenging and serious issues, I guess, in placemaking because it does impact so many people, cities especially. So, how do you think that we best take these issues and turn them into opportunities for innovation and look at them in a, I guess, more fun and enjoyable way? I'm not saying this has to be how you've done it in the past or how you're doing it now, but what do we do with stuff like that? Because obviously some of those things are quite challenging, difficult, serious kind of conversations. Like yeah. Is that what you mean? And um, what, you know, what can we do about that to address it in a way that isn't, I don't know, isn't typically how we look at those things and how we have done in the past? I've got to be honest with you. The way I deal with difficult questions is <laughs> this is <laughs> this is going to be such a cop out. Um, <laughs> is I I get in the people who know more than me. I don't have the answer to things like that. Yeah. Um, I've got experience in you know um, carbon neutrality and how you achieve that on a project, which is a, one of the big issues of our time, right? C climate change. But again, I use the sheer force of my personality to help get things done. But I'm not the expert. I get the experts in to help work out what needs to be done and how we solve it. So with yeah. homelessness or with housing affordability, it's getting the people that have who who know the levers to push and pull, who have studied and understand what works and what doesn't work. And then 
I suppose my role and and you know Anita, that's that's the uh, CEO of Placemaking. Our role is to help create the environment where we can create the change, can create the opportunity where change can be made. And so we use our influence and our power to do that. Do you think experts are always, I know no, yes, they offer right. a lot of value, yeah, yeah. but being the only voice in the room, I guess is probably quite dangerous too, right? You can't, like, yeah, you're right. You can't have yeah. one. Can yeah. you? So I'm not oh saying that Dave the a, bricklayer in lifts no, down the road, no, but, but it's, no, it's <laughs> really, how do we oh God, introduce those different voices and opinions that can look at things or just throw challenges to the experts that look at things a different way? Yeah. So I think it's isn't that coming back to uh, diversity of voice, diversity mm. of experience. So you know, if you're setting up, so for example, in the delivery of public art and culture or what have you, you know, I set up a panel, and on my panel, I have a diverse range of voices. They don't always agree, but their role is to review the issue and to give advice. And so when you have those diverse voices around the table. I think a lot of the evidence shows you that you end up with a better outcome. And so that is what you'd have to do. So when I say experts, I'd get a range of experts, not just one. (laughs) Not just one, no. No. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Absolutely. Look, we uh, tend to wrap things up with some final quick fire questions. Oh, God. You don't have to answer them quickly. I'm just going to ask them one after the other. The first one is, what's your opinion on the number one consideration for successful placemaking in the future? Climate change. How do we create, well, in Australia in particular, cool, resilient places? Because that's going to be our number one challenge in Sydney. Do you think, and this, sorry. Go on, no, go for it. (laughs) I'm following on from that. Do you think that that's a new challenge? Because I feel like Australia's kind of struggled with that issue for a while. It's not a new challenge. It's been around for for 40 years, 30 years. No. So what? What? How are we going to answer that question differently now than we have done in the past? No, sorry. I'll Wait, ask so, you so some why tough haven't questions. we? So that you, I think your question yeah. is, why haven't yeah. we nailed it? That's right. What's going um, on? <laughs> uh, there hasn't been the political will, but I think we've seen a lot of leadership from private enterprise in that space. Um, you see leadership from individuals and entities. And there's now, I, I think there's a groundswell. I think it's now an expectation. But what I'm not seeing necessarily is a translation into public space outcome. So we may see it in a recycled water treatment plant that we're sitting over the top of right now or in, you know, 21 waste streams. But I'm not necessarily seeing it in we need to make sure that we have endemic planting that fosters um, fauna, that provides shade, that increases, um, you know, uh, the ecological biophilic outcomes of a place, for example. Yeah. Yes, yeah, we've got sure. the RL at 3.5 and we, we can adapt to sea level rise and we're all going to be fine. Yeah. But we just need to be taking everything to the next level. We cannot be shy about going for it. Yeah. We have to be bold. Yeah. That's the message. That's the message. How can everyday people get more involved in creating places for people? Do you know what I reckon it is? I think it's about your street. How do we create our neighbourhood streets to be more inviting and more for everyone else? So, for example, I painted over lockdown. We, my family, my kids and my husband and I, we painted a street library and put it up on the wall outside our house. And let me tell you, it has created more conversation 
and more engagement in our street well, besides the annual Christmas party um, <laughs> in the street. There's so much chat and um, it's just brought everyone together. It's just been amazing. Also, just I'm desperately I, – I, part of the reason I want to move house – is because I want to have a verge that I can put fruit and veggies in. <laughs> I want to, I want to like take over a verge. I know you're probably not allowed to, right? But um, you know, I just want to see yeah. more of that kamikaze action. You see it everywhere, right? Yeah. yeah but you yeah. don't see it consistently, and I think yeah. that is a great way to create places for people. Like, what's better than people sitting on their front veranda having a chat, having a cup of tea with their neighbour? There is nothing better than that. Absolutely. Well, look, I reckon that I can give you that answer for both of the last questions. <laughs> the coolest thing and things that people can do. So I think there it's actually very relevant to both of those. And look, I've taken away so much from our conversation, so many things, so many great things, some practical lessons for um, people to take away out there as well. And it's been absolutely fascinating to hear a bit more about your life story, a bit more about the fantastic projects that you're working on at the moment. Um, and like I say, some really practical tips. So thank you so much for joining me. Um, it's been an absolute blast. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. thank you. The Places for People podcast is made for you by Creo and NPM. We believe if your people matter, your place does too. Check out how we can help with your place design and building needs at placesforpeople.com.au. Whether it's a brand new workplace for your team, a bar, restaurant, a retail renovation, or a million things in between, we've got you covered.